Hello and welcome to the I'm Pretty Podcast. I'm Basma and this is Chi. We want to explore the world of beauty through the experiences and stories of people of colour. In each episode, we will unpack different themes and topics, along with the help of some friends, experts and people we just really love. We've got lots to say, lots to learn and we're here to do that with you. So let's get to it. Hello. Hi babes, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I mean, finally, I can get back to a normal routine and sleeping etc but I'm feeling good how are you I think everyone is on cloud nine re Biden slash Harris I mean what a week it's been but actually I think particularly probably for every woman of color in the entire world watching Kamala Harris beaming absolutely beaming while she was basically accepting her acceptance speech I literally was like your happiness is making me so happy. Yes. Yes, for sure. Like, I didn't expect to feel the way that I felt mm. while watching her speech and then just watching her entire family and her little grand nieces oh, oh gosh, dancing around on the stage and just yeah. like so much joy. So much joy. And I think it just is, it's a little bit of hope. And even in her speech, when she was sort of saying, um, you know, I might be the first woman, but I'm not going to be the last woman. And you're just like, yes, <laughs> so good. Yes, because that's the <laughs> thing. I get so frustrated about people celebrating firsts. I'm like, mm. first isn't to be celebrated. And I actually think that both mm. Kamala and Joe addressed it perfectly in their speeches. I think Joe Biden said something like, it's been a long time coming too long. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Kamala said, as you've quoted, I may be the first, but I'm not the last. Yeah, but it is, as we say, and as we have said, you know, when we've talked about things being the first or things coming up, there still needs to be a first to be a second. So in that instance, you got to be 100%. like, you know what? Yeah, it's not cool, but we, we're moving. It's progress. <laughs> yeah, it's progress. Yeah, definitely. It's not to undermine it, but it's just that, you know, mm, it's not like, you. wow, the first. It's like, whoa. <laughs> The first Whoa, the first. In 2020. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Anyway, I feel like people might be a bit bored of presidential chat. I personally, when I was browsing through podcasts this weekend to listen to, everything was about the US mm. election. So I'm fatigued. Well, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on from fatigue. This week's episode, we are talking colorism, yeah. which is actually a big topic. One of the biggest topics we wanted to discuss from the very beginning, but it's something that we wanted to wait till we had the right guests and also had, you know, done our research personally into yeah. the depth of the topic. I mean, we're not even going to, you know, get past the surface with this Mm, because it's mm. such such a big topic Mm -hmm. but I think one of the key pieces of feedback that came off the back of the fetishization episode was a comment that I made but didn't really expand on which was that black guys don't really like me and (laughs) I hate when you I actually hate when you say that it actually I hate saying it it makes me really sad I don't like it it's really hard to explain because it sounds like I don't want to date black guys when that Mm. is not the case at all. And I remember Mm. actually one of my white friends years ago, she actually made a comment. She was like, oh, but you don't date black guys. And I was like, Mm. hun, think about the amount of times that we've been out in the club and (laughs) you fucked up with a black guy. Yeah, and none of them have made any attempt towards me. Yeah, like it's not that I don't get attention. Like, Mm. but have you thought about that? Maybe. Mm. And I think that colorism really plays into that. That's not to say that black guys don't date 
darker skinned black girls at mm-hmm. all. Like there are definitely some, I've dated some of mm-hmm. them, my brothers and my cousins are examples of that. But it is something in the black community that doesn't yeah. really get discussed. Yeah, and it's when we talked about that and we sort of delved into it. Actually, we had a group discussion with Ao and with Kadeen. Of course, because you and Ao are darker skin to me and Kadeen, and I always said that my struggle when I started dating black guys is that a lot of their darker skinned black girl friends would be like, oh, well, so you went for the light skinned girl. And I always struggled with that because I was like, oh, that's not really... It's not fair. I, like, I know I'm lighter skinned than you are. Um, yeah, I agree. My struggle is not the same as being darker skinned. I think actually, you know, the darker you are, probably more the societal struggle. But I felt always a bit. On I guess the back it's a different it. societal struggle. I don't want you yeah. to diminish your struggle. It's just it's a different experience. Yeah, it's not necessarily like in some aspects it's worse, but there are things that are worse for you. Mm, mm. yeah I guess for me it was always just like oh like please don't like exclude me from this conversation because I'm not a dark-skinned girl I still have a struggle it's just a different struggle as you say so I always struggled with that struggle because I always felt like I shouldn't have a voice in it because my struggle isn't as deep when actually it's just a different kind of struggle that I don't think and Katie kind of agreed with me that light-skinned black girls don't really talk about yeah I really wish that we could have recorded that entire conversation Mm. that we'd had Mm. for people to listen into that statement that you know the black guys darker skinned black girlfriends Mm. were making was actually it was a derogatory statement towards him not towards you it was their way of essentially saying that this darker skinned black guy fetishizes lighter skinned black women essentially so you are a victim of fetishization potentially (laughs) which yeah, yeah. is a different kind of discomfort to the discomfort that you were feeling, yeah, I imagine. And, yeah, and the thing about it is, I guess lighter-skinned black girls don't get to have that conversation. And not that we're not allowed to have it, but almost it's like, well, like, relax. Our struggle is still, you know, as a darker-skinned girl, it's still harder than your struggle. So I always felt like, okay, I've just got to swallow that. But I never really thought about it until you guys explained it about that it's a reflection on him rather than a reflection on me. I always took it quite personally. Yeah, these kind of conversations need to continue happening. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about dating. I mean, we'll unpack it when we get into the episode, but the yeah. separation that happens within community, mm-hmm. just down to the shade of skin that you have, mm-hmm. despite all identifying as the same race, is hugely problematic. And yeah actually just by having that conversation like imagine if those situations that you're in with those girls if you both felt comfortable enough to explain both of your sides there would have been this understanding and less animosity is not the word but yeah I hear you (laughs) it is a bit of animosity yeah Yeah, definitely yeah I agree with you it's just interesting and I think it's also hearing about it from different people's different walks of life we are not as we do say in the in the conversation, you know, it's not it's not a monolith discussion. This one because everyone is of a different shade, so their colorism issue or their race issue, because obviously we have two we have different races in this as well. Everyone has a separate experience, so colorism isn't such a blanket statement at times when actually it's a lot deeper. Yeah, exactly. Shall we get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. 
In today's episode, we have Purna Bell. Purna is an award-winning journalist and author working as a mental health advocate for the last five years. She's won Stylist's Rising Star Award for 2019 and was named Marie Claire's Top 30 Women and is one of the Balance Magazine's Top 100 Wellness Personalities. She's a public speaker, a freelance journalist, and she's written for Red, The Telegraph, The Times, Stylist... Guardian, Grazia, pretty much everywhere. <laughs> She's a regular contributor to BBC Radio and a charity work includes being a judge for the Mind Media Awards and she's an ambassador for the male suicide prevention charity, Calm. Also joining us is Toby Cherimateng. She is an award-winning producer, writer and social entrepreneur using film, written essays, live public events and community-led and co-designed programmes. Working in cultural production, strategy, consultancy, and project management. Toby, you are the ultimate slasher, can I just say. <laughs> Toby has delivered activity for organisations including Afropunk, BBC, Black Girl Fest, the National Theatre, Nike, Tate Modern, and more. <laughs> and she's written for media outlets such as Black Ballad, Galdem, and Love Magazine. Welcome both. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Hello. So the first question we love to ask our guests, which actually we kind of changed around after we were called out a couple episodes ago. But the first, <laughs> the first question we like to ask everyone is how do you identify yourself ethnically? But also now we go, how do you like to identify yourself ethnically and culturally? So Perna, we can start with you. I'm really glad you've amended this actually, because it is, this is relevant. So I am British and I'm also Indian, but I lived in India for a number of years. So in terms of how how I identify culturally, I do identify with being British, I do identify with being Indian, but I don't necessarily identify with other British Indians because Ooh. my experience has been different because I've lived in my ancestral homeland, which a lot of British Asians haven't done. Mm. Ooh, well delivered, Purna. Gosh, <laughs> she thought about this here. <laughs> Literally just come... She came prepared. She prepared. Yeah. <laughs> and Toby, what about you? Um, uh, I'm black, Nigerian, Ghanaian, a South Londoner. I don't know if I can, and I guess like black British, but that's in the context of, I guess, like the shared cultures that lots of black Britons have with each other. So like our slang, our language, you know, it's borrowed from like West Indian cultures and Somali cultures. But I don't know if I fully identify with being like British as a whole, because I think my Britishness is very specific to South London, <laughs> not the rest of <laughs> not the rest of the UK. <laughs> so yeah, oh I think that's that's, that's what British. I would say. I feel like this question has gone deeper and deeper with every episode that we go. Suddenly it's become like a whole thing. Before it was like, yeah, yeah. It used to be like this one word answer. So we've brushed on this theme that we're discussing today, which is colorism many times in previous episodes, but it's been almost too big of a topic for us to give it a proper spotlight. So we needed to have a standalone episode to try and talk on our experiences and also to unpack and help people understand what colorism is. So we have brought together you two, Perna and Toby, two people from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds, as colorism is something that affects pretty much all non-white communities. Perna, you've written about the history of colorism in your family. Can you share your general experiences with our listeners? 
So my general experiences, so the, the sort of the biggest chunk of when I lived in India was from the age of seven to 12. So my experience of colorism is actually being in India and, and sort of seeing, you know, just actually being completely immersed in the language that's used, you know, being very aware from a young age what, what colorism was. And then coming to England and then there being sort of two dimensions, which is number one, you know, the fact, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs in Kent of being, you know, one of three girls of colour in my class in a very predominantly white area. But then also, you know, when you kind of, um, when you socialise with you, people from your community in England, understanding, and not just in your own community, you know, in other parts of um, South Asia, that you realise how present colorism is in, in just every conversation mm -hmm. that you have. I mean, my my kind of understanding of it was, so I didn't even really know, for example, that people outside of South Asia experience colorism. That's like how little I knew about it. I thought it was just something that, you know, we had within our own, um, so like, let's say I'm from India, but, you know, obviously I have, I mean, I have friends who are Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Sri Lankan. It's, it's all the same thing in terms of, you know, colorism. But what I was interested to find out was the root of colorism is not the same, for example, let's say for South Asians, that it might be, or even it, within South Asians, that it might be, for example, with the black community. So for us, a lot of that colorism, colonialism didn't help. I mean, what did it do? It definitely, <laughs> did, it definitely didn't help. But a lot of that is rooted in the caste system. So the caste system mm -hmm. has been, you know, within Hinduism, for example, has been going on for about 3000 years and it's rooted in so not just you know ideas of let's say what you would call western ideals of what beauty are but within sort of our own race as it were there are very big distinctions between you know if you've got lighter skin you're deemed more attractive you it's also got a huge economical aspect to it because you know you're given better access to jobs so you would tend to have more wealth etc cetera, etc cetera. whereas having darker skin is viewed as in the same way i would say that generally when we talk about colorism but dark skin is viewed as a hindrance it's not viewed as attractive people who kind of were at the lower end of the caste system who did um you know jobs that weren't paid very well were then at that bottom end of the spectrum so mm -hmm. its roots are pretty old and they're pretty long and then when you obviously layer colonialism on top of it what you have is this unbelievably you know toxic system of privilege, of how we view our own attractiveness within that, our own self-worth and so on, mm. that to this day, you know, it's it's in every, it's almost every conversation that I will have with, especially my relatives, less or so maybe in my own peer group now, but it's there, like it sits at the back, you know, of almost every single thought when it comes to talking about attractiveness. Yeah, amazing. Wow, you... Yeah. <laughs> wow, Britta. <laughs> you have feelings on this, but we're like, yeah, you're totally right in every different sphere. And just also hearing about that point of view of it being, I guess, from that from that Asian perspective or that Pakistani mm. perspective, in the sense, yeah, it is kind of all the same thing, but has a different, different undertones of the same undertone. If you know what I mean, like it's very, yeah, it's really interesting. And Toby, what about you? What are your experiences of colorism? I guess like very very similar so you know colorism within black community and different black communities as well geographically I think you know I'm half Nigerian and skin bleaching is like widely advertised out there on you know on billboards and in shops and stuff like that there's an active culture of colorism and demonizing dark skin and similar to what 
to what Paula was saying. I think in the UK, it, you know, it will affect the sexualization of young black girls, young black boys that are likely to get stopped and searched, things that contribute to like the school to prison pipeline. Uh, I think in an American context, there are statistics on the makeup of prisons and how many of those people have darker skin. I don't know if you have those statistics in the UK. And I think conversations within black communities tend to focus around desirability and so like dating and marriage and that sort of intercultural relationship but I think you know it stems it stems a lot widely than that when it comes to sort of like job opportunities and um, access to medical care things that are pretty much life and death I guess that as a as a dark-skinned black girl it's something that I experienced growing up I have a sister who I'm about a decade older and it's something that she has experienced growing up as well. So it's this constant sort of like cycle. Yeah. Toby, can you tell us more about the concept of the misogynoir? Because I know that's something that you've talked about quite a lot. I was reading one of your Galdan pieces where you, we introduced, well, not introduced the idea, but you almost unpacked it. Can you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, so misogynoir essentially talks about misogyny that is specific to black women because it is furthered and enhanced by our race. It's sexism that is informed by also being black and how those two intersect. It's a term that was coined by a queer black feminist called uh, Moya Bailey, who is American. So the concept of the idea was started from an American lens, but it's widely been adopted and adapted by by black women across the world. And it really kind of looks at how being a black woman specifically reinforces specific aspects of racism and specific aspects of sexism. And I think that differentiation is really important uh, in the same way like we talk about intersectionality. It's, it's the highlighting the nuances of particular experiences. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're very right, actually, because it is it's important to actually identify things as like se- separate. They all don't roll, roll a ball into one thing that colorism sort of affects. It just becomes an overall umbrella topic and an umbrella sort of word to cover all these different things. But actually for especially, I guess, for the fetishization of black women, it's more than just the color of your skin also it comes from like sexism and yeah yeah it's very it's it was a great article yeah we really enjoyed it I guess the other thing that we were thinking about and we talked about quite a lot when we thought of this episode is how colorism manifests itself in the modern world advertising education entertainment there's all these different sort of I guess for me it's a it's a slight dig at colorism without it being it's like a discreet sort of like we prefer this and growing up all of, like me and she worked in fashion it was almost like don't go too dark you know don't oh you can always go too light but you can't go too dark or if you're gonna go dark you, it needs to be the beautiful shiny glossy dewy skin black mm-hmm. I guess Purna from your perspective as an Asian woman how have you seen colorism sort of manifest itself when it comes to I guess entertainment I'm South Indian and in the UK if you look at kind of the breakdown of different communities where I come from we're in a minority so the, the majority of of South Asians who tend to be here are North Indian or from you know other countries like let's say Pakistan or Bangladesh or Sri Lanka it's important to say this because let's say for example in South India you do have have people who have skin colors that are possibly at the lighter end of the spectrum 
by and large, because we're in the South, and also I'd need to be a lot more in tune with my science and sociology, but we have darker skin. Mm. And our skin can range from someone who is very, very light skinned to someone who has this like incredible, you know, almost like an indigo blue kind of skin. It's like the most beautiful skin I've seen. And in the UK, a lot of our entertainment, South Indians don't really get cast. I mean, it might be Mm -hmm. because we're a minority, but what drives me absolutely mad, and I am very, very vocal about this because this was about sort of two or three years ago, the BBC did this thing called, I think it was called like an Asian summer or something, which was like a season of South Asian related content. And I was yeah. like, where where the fuck are the South Indians? Like, mm. why is this all geared? Yet again, it's all geared towards representations from very particular areas. Mm-hmm. And that matters because... The, the majority of people who come from those areas, so let's say if you're North Indian, you are most likely going to be a lighter skinned South Asian, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we could say that, okay, maybe it's that, you know, there aren't enough like South Indian or Sri Lankan actresses or actors or whatever. But I don't think that's the case. I think that there is like, whether it's subconscious, unconscious, conscious, whatever it is, mm-hmm. I do think that that's about colorism. And I do think that that's this um, decision that gets made down the line which is what is the closest approximation to white Western attractiveness. And there is a certain set of of South Asians who do resemble that the closest, Mm -hmm. who then get depicted. So, for example, the only time I've ever seen the depiction of where I come from on TV is Mindy Kaling, because she's Tamil, which is also... Tamil Nadu is a state in the South. Like, so the only time I will ever really get to see my own culture represented is in in the States. Yeah, and it's one person right what that then means is so having had a childhood of growing up not seeing you know like many of us not seeing any representations of let's say from my own culture or for sure you know darker skinned women from where I come from from having grown up and seeing that play out across the board in magazines tv film you name it to then kind of coming into 2020 and still seeing this aspect of colorism play out and worst of all it being such a blind spot because people think that they've ticked you know this wider diversity box around things that is so frustrating Mm, I hear um, you for me yeah yeah totally I think (laughs) there's a huge 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 education that needs to be done I think when it comes to diversity around black people I know from conversations that I have been present for or witnessed that people are starting to understand more that you know having a light-skinned black woman isn't enough but definitely within the south asian representation that is something that i have never ever seen discussed i think generally in most industries actually south asians despite being i think eight percent of the population was that it's a high percentage definitely a high percentage i think it's a significant from what the representation yeah, actually is yeah, you're yeah, right yeah. it's a significant yeah. amount yeah it's crazy like there are more south asian people in the uk than black people i understand mm. and yet the diversity that we see represented is always and it actually really pisses me off because as much as i really want to see more people that look like me on mm. the screen and like it's not just about people that look like me it's like the tv should TV programs should look like the world outside of our homes. And that's what a lot of people are hugely missing. Toby, you mentioned skin bleaching in Nigeria. And actually, when we were 
planning this episode, our producer Ayo and I are both Nigerian and we were talking about our experiences with skin bleaching within our family. Well, not even within our family because we've both by chance been brought up to actually, I don't want to say look down, but our parents have always been like, oh, you know, she bleaches her skin or Mm. be careful about that soap. Don't use her soap because it's going to bleach your skin. It's not, it's never been something that's been encouraged or to aspire to. But I know at the same time, it's in terms of like advertising and part of the culture, it's such a big thing. Like what has your experience been? Well, obviously like I was born and raised in Britain. So my experience, like my relationship with, I guess like the the idea of skin bleaching isn't going to be the same as those that, you know, actively are born and live in Nigeria. So it's not something that has Mm -hmm. been enforced by you know my family members because it hasn't had to be in the same sort of way but when I went to Nigeria and I met my grandma for the first time like she had very clearly bleached her skin over a number of years and you could you could see it and my mum could see it and also you know like again like in Nigeria like this equates to your sort of wealth status like your class the kind of job opportunities that's afforded to you whereas I guess in the Mm -hmm. UK even though those experiences can be the same, I guess they're not as, for lack of a better word, obvious. That is sort of like, people aren't actively saying, oh, you are of a darker complexion, so therefore I won't give you this job role. Whereas in Nigeria, when you look at the people yeah. that, you know, do hold the most wealth and are of a higher class class status, they do tend to be lighter skinned. And so it's not something that has had to be enforced by my family here because of the context that we're living in if I was born and raised in Nigeria and I still lived there I don't know how if that would still be the same yeah how it would play out it's funny I think it's an overall African thing that that signature of beauty me and my brothers are all all three of us are different complexions and my middle brother the one older than me is a lot darker than me and my other brother and my aunts my dad's side of the family do use skin bleaching and so bleaching and we were quite young and they were washing their faces with this soap and he and just curious kid he was like oh what's this and I could see like to make yourself lighter and I remember I remember his face so well it just like sunk into him and he you know as a man even it sunk into him to be like wait you're not happy that you have the same color skin tone as me so are you telling me that I shouldn't have Mm -hmm. this skin tone and I remember it so well my mom and dad sort of trying to cover it up and trying to be like no 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 we don't approve of that we love you for who you are but if your family members are doing it and you're a kid and you're young and you see it, it's kind of, it's quite detrimental to, you know, even just being accepted for who you are. And I think for him, it was a little bit detrimental because he was like, basically, you're saying to me that I'm too yeah. dark. So yeah, it was an interesting sort of, and I guess we've never talked about it then. I actually think they still do bleach their skin. They're just not very open about it and maybe probably hide the bars of soap when we're around when we go to Sudan, which is, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, really. I'm interested to know what shade emojis everyone uses and has it changed as well? So I use one for summer and winter because um, I tend really, (laughs) (laughs) I don't do, I don't think I do it consciously. I think it's just literally like, cause in the summer, like I, I tan like very, very quickly. And so I think in my mind, because I know what I look like, because I look at myself in the mirror, when I kind of, when it comes to sort of putting the emoji, if I'm like, oh, no, that's that's not what my colour is. I just kind of like go up uh, a shade. <laughs> and then in the winter, when my skin's a bit like lighter, I then kind of go down a shade. Oh my God, amazing. Oh my I God, actually really you actually colour match your emoji. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Hello>. <laughs> 
Toby, where do you go? I just use the darkest one. Yeah, which you're I just still... like, I know what I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I either I get darker or or I just stay the same. <laughs> so yeah, I just use the darkest dark, ones. Yeah. <laughs> but my dad uses the yellow ones, but I think I think he's just getting used to Oh, maybe what he doesn't know he's got are. options. Well, yeah. here's the question with the yellow ones. Do people, if people know they have the option, but stay yellow. I had this thing with my mum because I was like, why isn't she choosing a shade? Do you think that's a pur- that, that's on purpose? Uh, I'm sorry, but you can't shade your mum for her technophobia. I don't like, know. There was, was pretty, pretty I don't sharp. know whether she... She doesn't know. Mm, she doesn't. She doesn't know. Or she's not... She can't be bothered. Like of all the things, your mum's a busy woman. For her to figure out how to color match her emojis, I don't. I feel like that's not her priority right now. Fair, that's fair. That's fair point. Fair point. Wait, okay. Here, I have a question for you guys. If you guys had a friend, so not a mum, a friend your age, who stayed yellow, a black friend or someone of color that stayed yellow, how would that make you feel? I would circle it and I would go, what's up with this? And then I'd send it back to them. <laughs> Choose their shade for them. Yeah. Or oh, what if someone went light? Would you call them I've done this where a friend has made like a bitmoji or whatever. It's like those emojis that are meant to look like them. And I've oh, been yeah. like, that doesn't yeah, look like you. Like, like, mm, <laughs> like <I'm having> <laughs> to be honest, I'm having that issue. Those bitmojis are fair. They're not. I mean, generally, they just don't look like the person. But he just, he was like my complexion. And this guy is like a light-skinned guy with green eyes. And I was like, you, what are you doing? This doesn't look like you. <laughs> oh, hold on, he made himself darker. He was really dark. And he's just not, <laughs> he's not dark-skinned at all. And I was like, he's not that dark. this? No. (laughs) (laughs) But it's funny because Kadeen is also one of our producers. She is light skin and she originally was using, I think, the middle shade. Mm. And someone, one of her friends was like, hun, what are you doing? Go go a shade up. Go a shade up, not down. Up, yeah. Because she now uses the second to darkest one. Oh. Which I've always been like, I don't think that's your shade, but but this is okay. We're really getting into it, and this conversation's gone on a bit too long. But it's just very interesting (laughs) that we all have to match our shades to our emojis. That in itself is a little bit of colorism right there. (laughs) But it is. I think that's why I'm asking the question because I think for me, because there's only what is the five shades? There's five colors, and then the yellow one. Yeah. Um, I know that as much as I'm a dark-skinned woman. And not the darkest. Mm. So I started off second to last. And then I eventually was like, do you know what? Actually, I you're should just la- go for the you're darkest. You're the last one. Yeah, you're the last one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then what happens? There's there's shades missing. There's a whole, I mean, there's I a mean, whole someone contact missing. WhatsApp. Someone <laughs> get Fenty involved. Get Rihanna. Um, <laughs> so shade emoji. a quick question that I've, I, it sounds really silly, but Purna, um, I've personally always wondered this, and we were talking about this as a group. As a South Asian woman, do you categorize yourself as brown? Like, if someone calls you black, do you correct them? Or do you think of yourself, you know, as a person of color, do you see yourself as brown or black? Because technically, 
I always feel like, yeah, I'm I'm black, but I'm also brown. So we're all brown. I have always, I think, from memory, I've referred to myself as brown. I don't think it's an identifier for me in like a massive way. It's just like I look at my skin color and that's kind of what it looks like. But also, I don't think anyone from from memory anyway, scanning my memory banks, I don't think anyone has referred to me as black. And if they did, they were doing it in a derogatory way Mm. to point out, which is obviously very linked to what we're discussing, Mm. which Mm. is uh, to point out how dark I've got. And that obviously brings me to a secondary point, which is one of the reasons why colorism is so problematic in South Asia or just, you know, South Asian communities is because it does feed into anti-blackness, you know, and it does kind of prop up the sort of the anti-blackness that is within the Asian community, which is why it's really like, it's important to dismantle colorism within South Asians, not just because it's something that we police each other with and, you know, tear each other down, but Mm. also it does affect the black community. And that is Mm. something that's not acceptable at all in any way because if we're supporting these ideas you know of attractiveness associated with one type of skin and what is that saying about the other that sits at the end other end of that spectrum so I think that's quite important to say especially when we're discussing particularly this year about work around anti-racism like I don't want to hear from any South Asians who are not also going to discuss this as part of that work because it's something that we all know like exists and does need to be tackled and unraveled yeah yeah definitely so it's interesting we had Jasmine Muller on the podcast a few episodes ago talking about her mixed race identity etc but she grew up in the Middle East and in the UAE And she talked quite a lot about the anti-blackness that manifests itself in that culture. And it's something that isn't really, really, really discussed. I've only very recently started referring to myself as dark skin. Reason being, I grew up in a largely white community and the only other black people were people who had the same shade of skin as me or they were mixed race. And... So the idea of being dark skin, light skin just wasn't even a consideration of mine. And it actually wasn't until I was started this podcast and Basma, you were the first person that called me dark skin. Really? And I was like, yeah, you really were. Oh, I, was like, oh, I don't know if that's a good I've thing. I've been called that before. Oh, it's, okay. it's neither a good or bad thing. Like it's kind <laughs> of, it's a, it's kind of fact when you have the two of us together and you're differentiating mm. between the mm. two. Yeah, I guess But so. my question is, you know, as black and brown people we tend to be categorized by the dark skin or light skin but when does light become dark like surely they just can't be these two things in opposition and also in an ideal world would we even need to have those categories that's a tricky one <laughs> um i mean yeah no i mean in an ideal world even racialized categorizations like black wouldn't exist like they they exist for mm-hmm. for a reason, but we're here. So <laughs> I think yeah. the the sort of categorizations of like what is light skinned, what is dark skinned, what is brown skinned, essentially all of it is relative. But I guess like the context that we're that we're speaking of is under a kind of white supremacist patriarchy. And I think there there have mm-hmm. been lots of conversations that I've had with people where they've sort of said yeah well I think I'm dark-skinned and it's like yeah like we feel how we feel about ourselves but in the context of a white supremacist patriarchy 
which is what we're talking about between us, who was more likely to experience certain things yeah. based on the shade of our skin. And I think sometimes it can feel problematic to, you know, always refer back to whiteness to see everything through the lens of whiteness. But, you know, if we're talking beyond desirability politics and we're talking about medical care, we're talking about employment, we're talking about our relationship with the state, with the criminal justice system, we are talking about models of white supremacy. And so that is the lens that we have to analyse these categorizations through. I don't really call myself dark-skinned outside of a context of talking about an aspect of colorism. I don't think. Like, I just call myself okay. black because mm-hmm. I'm quite yeah. visibly black. But I yeah. don't, yeah. on a day-to-day, sort of, like, be like, yeah, I'm a dark-skinned black girl, unless, unless I have a reason to sort of point out that specific nature of my skin tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually a funny one because it almost you almost get categorised and then you end up doing it. So, like, for me, like, when people say, like, you're a light-skinned girl, when we talked about this topic, I got really frustrated with it because I was like, it's really unfair that I don't just get to be black. Like, I have to be a light-skinned black, which almost I guess and it's probably a defense mechanism but part of me always felt like oh does it mean my struggle isn't the same struggle because the struggle's always been for dark-skinned women and actually that light skin dark skin at what point you become dark at what point you become light like when I come back from holiday am I suddenly a dark-skinned girl like I, and then are you guys darker skinned girls like it doesn't the whole thing actually doesn't make sense when you have to categorize yeah. yourself by color so yeah no it's it's a good point though it's funny that you wouldn't walk around being like I'm a dark-skinned black girl you just you don't have to it's just when you feel like you you know you're in a I don't know you have to categorize yourself when you're in a situation Purnad. in black communities obviously colorism tends to affect women more than men but it's not always the case as I said about my brother but also I think in the South Asian community also it's not Obviously, the world, including yourself probably, watched Indian Matchmaker and represented colorism across the board for both men and women. It was such an interesting one because I wanted to sit down with someone from a South Asian community and be like, is this a, is this an accurate portrayal of what it actually is like when it's like, oh, she needs to be a bit lighter or he needs to be a bit lighter, whatever. Is it accurate? And if it's accurate, why is it accurate? Uh, yes, it is accurate. I think that a lot of people that I know who are South Asian found it quite upsetting because I think that they found parts of it a little bit triggering because Mm. this is obviously like an actual lived in situation for them that they've had to hear from like extended family and so on. Mm. I used to be married. I have no intention of getting remarried. So for me, it's like a, I I viewed it with a very, very different lens because I'm, I'm just not part of that nonsense at the moment. And, and nor will I be, but, but it is unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, your marriageability, which let's say in South Asian culture is huge in terms of that word makes me gross out. Your marriageability. Like what (laughs) is that word? Is that yeah, why do why do we have that word? Exactly. And it's it's you know, lighter skin has a higher premium when it oh comes to God. discussing things like mm. your marriageability. And one of Oof. the most notorious companies that has propped up this system, let's say in the UK, and they've recently changed it, I think, because they say that there was some glitch in their system and it should have been updated, which I don't buy for a second, is Shadi.com, which is the matrimonial site, which I remember at university. So I went to quite a, this was by accident, actually. I went to a, a university that was very heavily South Asian. So for me, it was actually a really good education for how 
the Asian experience is actually very different depending on where you're from, how conservative your family is, what religion you are, and so on. And I remember sort of towards the last year of university, for some girls especially, you know, the idea of getting married quite young was a thing. So some of them would go on shadi.com to like meet someone. And that's when we found out that they had skin colour categories. So I think wheatish or something like that was like at the lighter end of the skin colour spectrum. And then so you'd kind of like skin match according to this like list of, I think, five different definitions, which is so gross when you come to think about it, because actually, you know, because we have colorism that is so rife in in our culture, everyone is going to want to tick the box to look for girls who have the lightest skin on there. Mm-hmm. We're talking about obviously within the South Asian community, right? And what that ends up doing is, yeah, it does play a factor in terms of, let's say, quote marks, how well you marry, you know, um, girls with lighter skin and actually boys too, to be fair, you know, are viewed as better prospects just because of the color of their skin. And if it's lighter, it's got nothing to do with, you know, oh, yes, God. I know, right? And <laughs> Education might be a part of that, but I can tell you for the majority of people, the color of their skin will be one of the deciding factors, an aspect of you that you have no control over that has absolutely nothing to do with the type of person that you are. And yet that remains one of the most influential factors in terms of who you marry and, you know, what your prospects might be, which is unbelievable. Yeah. It's almost like Indian matchmaker kind of trivialized it and made it entertainment. But actually for people who it's a lived experience, it's actually a little bit heartbreaking. If you were, if you guys like that word is still like kind of like ringing in my ear, the marriageability. Yeah. And it was made into a show that was entertainment and kind of like fun and silly mm-hmm. and like po- poking fun at the situation when actually this is yeah. a proper lived experience for people. It is. I mean, you know, the the number of South Asian friends, um, you know, that I've had who, for example, when we would go on holiday, wouldn't go in the sun because they had a wedding coming up and their mother or maybe, you know, their father or whatever told them not to get darker because if they would then go to this wedding and let's say they were going to that wedding to possibly meet prospective future partners, that that would be detrimental to them meeting their partner so for a lot of women they do carry these experiences of being told that they're not worth much that they're not attractive etc etc but you're absolutely right it's then the, the issue I guess with Indian matchmaker for some of these women was that that wasn't properly deconstructed yeah. and unraveled and yeah. gone mm, and yeah. someone go that's really messed up like why mm. is that a thing and addressed yeah. it in the show that was mm. the only thing I would say yeah I suppose the good thing that came out of that though is that conversations happened and the concept of colorism was brought to the forefront more so generally when we were researching this episode there's barely anything i mean there's like trickles of stories that are you know on stylist on galdem perna and toby you guys pretty much have the monopoly (laughs) in terms of the uk media talking about colorism but i don't think it's being talked about enough do you think it's being talked about enough? And why do you think it isn't? Isn't being talked enough by who? Well, I was just going to say by the media at large. Because mm. but... uh, I think it's spoken, I would say, like, within black communities, I think it, it is spoken about more, especially with, I think, my generation, in terms of, like, mm-hmm. actively wanting to do that deconstructing and analyse it and not just sort of, like, carry these, like, generational remnants of colonialism, essentially. But I guess like talking about these things 
in in the public eye in terms of like a media lens gosh I mean I guess the reason I got commissioned by Gaudem is because Gaudem is run by black women I don't yeah. know who, yeah. who runs the BBC but I'm not gonna <laughs> it's not a black woman that's all yeah, I know I think it's a black woman <laughs> <laughs> and so you know I guess those people might not see the the value in these conversations. They don't understand what colorism is. They don't understand what misogynoir is. Like they probably were introduced to racism the other day. So to be, you know, to to go into it's true. a deeper conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing because it's it's true. Like the number it of people. Really I don't. Toby, I don't know if you get this, but like anytime I write something on colorism, the number of people that will go, oh, I didn't know this was a thing. Yeah. Oh, is it not the same as tanning? And I'm like, no, it's not the same <laughs> as tanning. And having to have those conversations oh every single time, I'm just like, oh. <laughs> you should write FAQs and just like send them <laughs> yeah. like an automatic reply. Please read my FAQs. <sighs> It's so, so true, then I guess, though. It... I guess the conversation is, if it's not being talked about where it should be talked about, obviously, you're right, Galdem is run by Liv, and that's, you know, that's why there's a space for that. And there's not a lot of spaces for us to talk about our experiences. But then if it's not being talked about, kind of a combination with how do we deal with colorism and this huge, massive topic that is not discriminative against actually any sector of color, it's actually widely against so many different types of people, how do we then deal with it? I guess with the media, I would say anyway, like there are definitely certain limitations on how nuanced you can be with your experience, right? So we've been talking a lot about colorism, but not just in the context of desirability, whereas I feel like a lot of like media organizations, they want to know about dating as like a dark skinned black woman, as opposed to like the fact mm. that I was rejected to medical care. You know that like, there, there are. There's only a limit to how right. deep you can go, and so I think mm. the best thing is to is for us to keep having these conversations internally within our communities, with directly with our people, and I guess like the articles and you know the media based things that we're writing for um, publications and organisations that aren't led by black and brown people. I think maybe we have to analyse who we're talking to when we we put these things out on those platforms and the I guess like the lens that we're then explaining colorism from because like for Galdem I interviewed a bunch of black women that had experienced colorism at some point in their lives online and offline and that article was for other black women but it was also for other black men to sort of see things that Mm -hmm. they had also contributed to I didn't write it with white people in mind if they read it then cool but that's not who I kind of was writing that for. Whereas like if we're writing for bigger media publications and that might be the audience that's going to be reading this, I might talk about colorism through the lens of white supremacy and colonialism and actually why we have these things as opposed to like the way black men might treat dark-skinned black women or lighter-skinned black women might might treat dark, darker-skinned black women because that for me is an internal conversation. It's a, actually a really solid way of putting it that actually it's not a monolith conversation where you can be like we just have to talk about this overall to all different types of people like in the same way I guess racism can be talked about obviously there's depths depending on whatever but it still is a, a bit more of a monolith topic, whereas actually with colorism, because it's an unknown topic, you almost have to teach it in certain different ways or mm. have the topic in different ways because it's not as readily understood. Yeah, it manifests itself differently within communities and also outside of the communities. Yeah. And I feel like 
right now there's work and conversations happening within black communities for sure definitely within the south asian communities from what i'm seeing on my social media feed but outside of that you know toby you you mentioned how colorism plays itself out in healthcare and in employment and criminal justice that is an external thing so that piece of work is I mean I guess it's part of the racism work that's going down that's the biggest piece of work that needs to happen in order to especially in the white west in order for things to move forward off the back of what Toby's just said I completely agree and I think that when you're I I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, but I find that if I'm doing a piece that is specifically about colorism, it will be for my community, but it will also be to maybe educate someone who's white, who doesn't know what colorism is. Mm. Having said that, I'm just like, but actually, you know, you kind of have to hope that someone's interested enough to want to Mm -hmm. read about it, to understand things from your perspective. And I feel like that's actually a huge gamble because I think that some people who don't really want to change their opinions, who don't really care because it doesn't really affect them, I don't think will engage with it. So actually in this kind of wider conversation, it is about dismantling that system. And that's why that conversation around media, representation in media, who commissioning editors are, like how diverse that pool is, it's really important because Mm. when you're then commissioning things on whether it's like dating or whatever it might be, those are conversations that can be organically wound into it, if if you know what mm-hmm. I mean, so that so that people then understand it from a different perspective. But you didn't have to write an entire feature about colorism for them to then be able to go, oh, okay, that's actually what it's like. There is like a different spectrum of experiences. But that mm-hmm. unfortunately is something that we, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done around that because you know British journalism, in particular, is still super super white in terms of you know the actual kind of makeup of it. Yeah. Mm. You're very right. 100%. You're very right, Purna. You're very right. Thanks for that. <laughs> okay, let's wrap, guys. <laughs> we have a last, well, one of our last questions that we ask all of our guests right at the end. So, the reason why we ask it is because the Unpretty podcast is dedicated to Black and non Black people of colour and Generally, as people of colour, we are kind of navigating through a world that doesn't often tell us that we're beautiful. So the question is, when did you first realise that you were beautiful? Oh, my good God. (laughs) That is such a big question. Actually, I'll be honest with you. It was quite late in life, I think. I probably realised it maybe when I was about like 30, 31 possibly but it was because I was with someone who like loved me in in an amazing way and and that made me feel really beautiful and so it wasn't just about it wasn't about the aesthetics of it it was how I kind of actually felt within myself oh lovely Mm -hmm. oh lovely I love that and and Toby what about you this is such a hard question um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah I, I don't know I think similar to Puna I think when I'm around people that you know energize me and and feed me and make me happy that's probably when I feel that's probably when I feel most comfortable and probably when I feel most beautiful at the same time but I don't know I don't know that's a hard question the answer is um you were always beautiful and you don't even know <laughs> we're all beautiful <laughs> 
Well, just before we wrap up, guys, we just wanted to ask you to let us know where people can find you on the internet. So, Purna, what are your social deets? I'm at Purna Bell on Twitter and Instagram. And that's it, I think. I am at Toby, K-Y-E-R-E, on Twitter and Instagram as well. What a topic. Right. I mean, there's, st- there's still so much more that, but mm. I think we're going to have to come back to this for season two. Yeah, I think we might need to. Also, I took a lot away from that emoji conversation. <laughs> like, it was quite yeah. fascinating, actually, <laughs> to talk about emojis, because it's something that we all use every single day, but we don't ever talk yeah. about, actually, the emoji effect. Oh, my God, I had a really interesting conversation with <laughs> over WhatsApp with one of my clients. He's one of my mm. favorite clients, actually. Mm. She's lols. Um, but I, I just sent her th- a thumbs up and obviously, like, a color matched. Mm. <laughs> and she was like, <laughs> she was like, oh, my God, um, I love I love this. Um, oh. She's a little bit older. I don't know whether oh. she listens to this because she normally just used the yellow. And then she was like, oh, but I would have to use this one. And she, like obviously use the palest one so you had a whole conversation about color matching your emojis yeah how funny (laughs) i absolutely love we can get into those kind of conversations because actually it's a pretty significant topic the emoji thing and it's still debatably something i think about when i use my whatsapp i'm like "Mm." because they don't i don't actually keep the same shade all year round anyway so like i don't know oh my god are you the same as burner so do you change it for seasons yeah yeah, I do (laughs) what that is so weird I mean to be honest whatsapp doesn't have the capabilities for me to change mine also my my skin tone doesn't actually get that much darker in the sun (laughs) mine definitely does but yeah such a great topic and I also I just think both ladies are so articulate and come from such a great place like I really like how they both like question things yeah, sort of, you know, yeah, what was it that Toby said when you were like, uh, who doesn't talk about it now? Yeah. She was like, what? What are you trying to ask? And just, yeah, Purna, I love, love, love Purna. Um, and I think that conversation from the South East Asian community is really important to have really important to have yeah. it's a whole different struggle it is and it's i think it's it sounds like it's embedded mm. much deeper into the culture than definitely from an african point of view mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. we have all said that in our families like that just isn't really a thing so like yeah. there isn't this internalized colorism within our you know tight-knit communities yeah. i mean if you go outside of that and you talk about dating obviously it exists as as I said in the intro but it's completely different and I think Mm. there are two big takeaways which is that more people need to understand it like I think white people need to understand it and understand how that relates to the black people in their lives whether it's hiring whether it's their friends whether it's healthcare whatever you know Mm -hmm. both Perna and Toby have written about this topic so we will insert their links in our show notes so please do have a read about what they both have to say because as we said this there was so much more that could have been said about this yeah and they're both super articulate so you'll take a lot away from their writing as I hope you have done from listening to this podcast yeah I hope so too I guess that's it for now yeah it is for now we haven't got that many episodes left because we are nearly mind-boggling at the end of the year 
So I know. I know it's mad. So please listen in to the few episodes we have left. We'll make sure they're good ones for you. And until next time. Until next time. You have been listening to the Unpretty Podcast, hosted by me, Chi Euphodiana. And me, Beth Maclita. Not forgetting our producers. Shout out to ASOLA for booking our amazing guests. And Katie Bissett for managing this whole thing. Special thanks to Xenia Geller for our artwork and Enoch Colo for our soundtrack. If you like what you heard and want to hear more, please make sure you subscribe, rate us, and make sure you tell all your friends. And follow us on at Unpretty Podcast on Instagram and Twitter for more updates. Until next time. <laughs>